Hey, hey, hey. My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. And today, let me see if I have the right mic, actually. I should probably check that. Yes, it's good. Okay, so today I'm just going to do a kind of chill Q&A. I had a class this morning, so I uh, I had to go to sleep for like two hours and then wake up and then go to class for two hours and then go back to sleep. So haven't had a chance to, to prepare anything, but uh, while I wait for all of your questions to flood in, I did want to go over a few things on Twitter um, regarding Muslims in the Trinity. But before that, uh, remember always to become a patron at patreon.com slash militant Thomas to get access to more resources. And if you just want to help your boy out, you know, I just want to be able to put as much time as I can into this because I really enjoy it. And I hope at least uh, you guys are being helped. A lot of people say that they're helped by the stuff I do. So that's good enough for me. But also uh, christianbwagner.com slash shop if you want some some books uh, that I reprint. And that's all I'll talk about, I guess, because Bonaventure put a question in. But <clears throat> he says, very serious question. Why are you wrong about if creation ex nihilo is provable? Well, I have a question for you, Bonaventure. Um, why are you wrong? So... Uh, th- so those who don't know the background of the debate, um, when it comes to, I um, broadly speaking, Dominican uh, but Thomistic uh, theology, um, creation ex nihilo is not provable from reason. But when it comes to Franciscan, it is provable from reason. Okay. What do you say to the fact that the Greek version of the formula of Hormistas and other pro-papal letters in the ecumenical councils admit the strong papal language present in the Latin versions? Did the Greeks know what they were consenting to? I'm not an expert on this, but I do have a background in uh, textual criticism and stuff, just, just a bit. And it's in, in those cases when you have both Latin and Greek uh, versions of a certain document. Somebody isn't being the most honest. Let's just let's just put it at that. So I guess it's whether your guy is being the most honest or whether the other guy is being the most honest. So again, it's uh, it's pretty pretty subjective in in that, and it would take some serious textual critical work that I am I have not checked out yet. Does Lagrange say anything about creation ex nihilo to your knowledge, actually? Um, I, I'm i not sure whether Lagrange covers that. I'm sure he does cover it somewhere. Uh, and I can't, I actually, now that I'm, now that I'm really thinking about it, um, I think the reasoning behind it would be because um, creation would be something which is a miraculous act outside of the normal scope of the of the working of nature so wouldn't be able to be something which we can know from reason it would need revelation that that's that's why but yeah i I mean i'm not it's not something i would uh 
I would fight you over Bonaventure. Did you have a subscriber con count contest with somebody a while back? I did with um, the other Paul. The other Paul and I had our race to 1,000, and I crushed him. It was great. YouTube just went with all of his uh, with all of his subscribers. So I'm going to wait for the chat to kind of fill up, actually, because I wanted to uh, wanted to go back on Twitter a little bit. So this was the tweet I had. Three days ago, it's the 20, it's the 30th. Yeah, so two days ago. I will debate any Muslim who is in a spaz on the Trinity. I've never heard, read or heard a good argument against the Trinity. <clears throat> there are some interesting, interesting comments. I'm a Christian, but it's not too difficult to point out why the Trinity is often called a paradox. And I don't think paradoxes are exactly coherent. The issue will come down to no one actually having a precise definition, not description of what a person slash hypostasis is yet. Um, we do. The, the tradition has a pretty precise definition. I think, honestly, and I've said this for a while, the problem I've seen with a lot of Muslim debaters when it comes to the Trinity and a lot of Christian defenders of the Trinity in these debates is that they're usually not debating like your local Dominican that's not who they're debating. They're not debating somebody who, who is a just solid Catholic um, thinker on the Trinity. They're debating like actual Trinitarian heretics, like um, James White, who I was just listening to his debate with Jake, and he was completely fine with saying that uh, that there were three centers of consciousness in the Trinity, which would be blatant tritheism. So, such as for one, how is the numerically identical essence repeated among three persons, yet not end up being simply an imminent universal with three instantiations, which is tritheism? Again, numerically identical essence repeated among three persons. It it's pretty clear here that Qmodo. I don't know what Qmodo means. He doesn't really understand. Um, classical Trinitarian theology. That's it because we wouldn't even use that, that language at all. And I, I know exactly where all of this stuff is coming from too. It's coming from those Muslims that are for some reason, very interested in analytical philosophy. For EOs, how can hypostatic prop what for EOs? What how why we don't deny hypostatic properties and how are they not accidents? Well, they're not accidents because we define um, a hypostasis as a subsisting relation, which is different. Normally, a uh, a relation would be accidental, but it's a subsisting relation. For RCs, how can the essence relate to itself in mutually exclusive ways? Because when it comes to generation and procession, there's a terminus at quo and there's a terminus at quem. And the formal cause of the Holy Spirit is also possessed by the Holy Spirit. Some believe this. But he can't actualize it. In what sense does he even possess it? Well, again, you're... It seems like he's just assuming a latent tritheism. 
because when it comes to the notional act of of the will, it is the common essential will shared by the three. And then if he doesn't possess it, how is the father and son distinguished as father and son relative to the Holy Spirit? If their spiration is numerically identical. And again, this language of numerical identity, that's just an analytic cope. That's, that's nothing more than that. Nope. Nobody uses that language in Catholic theology. So I don't know why you would, you would use it. Does the son's participation in the spiration differ from the father's? No, it doesn't. Okay, I guess I'll go back to after that. I just saw that earlier, and it's just pretty clear that, um, you know, when when you're when you're debating somebody and trying to trying to debunk whatever they believe, you usually use their language, but because there's been such this like analytic cope just reading all of these all these stupid analytic philosophers who are who are writing about the trinity and then simultaneously being trinitarian heretics like yeah that's what you're that's what's going to spit out Kumoto sounded like Occam over here James White straight up says he agrees with William Lane Craig about divine simplicity I'm unsurprised. Okay, what would be the topic of debate with your future Muslim interlocutor? Um, it will be on whether the Trinity is logically incoherent, which pretty glad I'm taking the defense and not uh, because I don't think because I'm a Thomist that the Trinity can be proved from natural reason. So that that would not even be that there wouldn't even be a topic for debate right there. Like I, I wouldn't even accept that debate. I would accept a debate with like a Unitarian on that, but not with a, a Muslim because we don't have a common uh, authority that would be able to prove the Trinity. If we can know God with certainty, then I don't see how you couldn't know creation X nihilo. I don't know how that follows, but, uh, Any thoughts on how we should read ancient authors who certainly held to problematic views, origin, Tertullian, etc.? Okay, that's a good question. I think we need to make a distinction. Again, I'm, I'm done with my distinctions. I just love distinctions. So you have to make a distinction between those who have errors and then those who are not Catholics. For example, origin... He had errors. Not going to lie, it was not his smartest moment to say that we're going to be spheres in the resurrection. Not his smartest moment. Those are errors. But with Tertullian, he, he left the Catholic Church. There's, there's, there's a big difference between the two. So when it comes to the, the former, the Catholics with errors, we really just read them as we would any other Catholic with errors, like I would read Scotus. But when it comes to those who are outside of the church, you have to be extremely careful about that because since they are outside of the church, um, they've been cut off from the life of grace. Well, we we uh, 
we are we do not know whether they have the the life of grace or not but they don't certainly share in the uh exterior um life of grace so you have to be a bit more careful because theology is not only a purely um rationalistic and intellectual exercise theology also has to do with that imminent intuition of one who loves god so that's why we tend to regard the writing of writings of saints with more authority than the writings of uh, extremely impious people because the former know god better even if the latter is more learned just debate shah beard no idea who that is nominalistic kimoto Michael Lofton's catchphrase is nuance, yours is distinction. Honestly, I think I can get out of any argument against one of my positions by just making a distinction. It is it is such such a powerful tool. Both God and creation are outside our empirical senses. If God can be deduced from our empirical senses via philosophy, why can't creation? Well, the 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 question would be the fact the fact that creation came from god um I, it's not debated by by anybody the fact that god created um that's not debated by anybody but he's asking about the specific modality of creation creation ex nihilo i guess you you could posit creation ex deo um if you, if you really wanted to um, i i really can't think of anything but creation ex nihilo that would be a um that would be a sound view, but again, that wouldn't be a uh, wouldn't be a deductive um, proof. It would be merely a moral proof to say, uh, excluding any other um, contrary positions. It doesn't necessarily prove that. That's what I meant. Not deductive. Necessary. Gosh, I'm tired. Sorry. Necessary. That wouldn't be necessary evidence, which is the debate. I think you can argue from natural philosophy to creation ex nihilo, but I don't think that um, you can make a necessary proof. It's the same way with the Trinity. I think you can make um, natural arguments which show that it is um, coherent, but I don't think you can make a necessary argument from creation to prove the Trinity. Okay, do you think that it is possible to rehabilitate origin into a Catholic paradigm? Honestly, I don't even know why you'd want to. It's like you, the church has debated and decided, because the way in which Catholic theology works is you have the the initial deposit of faith, which is given, obviously, in, in sacred scripture, and then in the... Um, in the preaching of the apostles, you have that, which is, which is given. And then you have the contemplation of the church on this apostolic deposit. Certain questions come up, they're debated and then bam, they're decided on. And once those Newman will talk about it in um, his on the uh, evolution of Catholic dogma, it goes from the subjective word of God. So our reception of the word of God to the objective word of God. It is truly being um, formalized through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit through the magisterium of the church. 
So now we have a proposition, which we know is infallibly true from Revelation. That's what we have now. So now we have this new proposition. And then from that proposition, we can go from proposition to conclusion even further. So that, that's kind of how, over time, the, the church has, has went about theology. So really, um, yeah, I, would, I would be very much, uh, Origen has some value um, in, in reading him, but he was at such an early stage of this development that he, he just didn't have um, a lot of the tools to make a good theologian. Like I had a I had a professor say once that Origen was absolutely brilliant, which I'm I'm assuming we can all agree upon. And if Origen lived in the medieval church with all of the um all of the good development that had happened over that time, Origen would have been just as brilliant as Aquinas. It's it's obvious Origen was a really smart guy. But again, why if if you're going to be um treating dogmatic questions why would you um, go to a source with less dogmatic value? Because that's that's what that's really what I am. James White said it. I'm a dogmatician. But I mean, if you're interested in historical theology, like go for it. But I'm assuming this question is asking about um, dogmatic theology. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you saw me post about it, but the other day in Eastern Orthodox, I know, was trying to argue John Scotus Eurigena was basically a crypto Eastern Orthodox, even though he was a pantheist and affirmed the filioque. Yeah, John Scotus Eurigena is, is not a good dude. As far as like doctrines, what does a Catholic have to believe about at the end times? Premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, optimistic amillennialism. That's a good question. Um, and I did, uh, when, when I went to college, one of my professors was Keith Matheson. And if, if you know who he is, he wrote, uh, the book post-millennialism. So, um, and then he wrote another book on eschatology too. So I, uh, I, I, I definitely have learned about this, um, in the categories that you're speaking about. So with, uh, pre-millennialism, pre-millennialism is not to be held at all. It's very bad to hold it. Um, uh, premillennialism was was condemned um, by the early church. So uh, that that's one thing to to keep in mind that that is that would be a Judaizing um, doctrine to take when it comes to eschatology. But with amillennialism and postmillennialism or optimistic amillennialism, it's kind of open. Um, you can when it comes to uh, specifically uh, how it will function. I mean, um, I, I think if you if you read historically, uh, historically the church, I'd say, would be a little bit more pessimistic. It would basically be um, an amillennialist sort of uh, view of things. But recently, um, a lot have put forth more optimistic views, and there have been thinkers um, throughout Catholic history who have put forth more optimistic views. And I go back and forth. I go like almost daily. I go back and forth whether I'm going to be optimistic or pessimistic. 
about uh, eschatology because it it does really seem that from Jesus's parables, like the mustard seed that's going to grow into the tree and so on and so forth, and the covenantal argument that uh, that Adam he failed to keeping his covenant. Abraham failed, uh, Moses failed, they all failed, but Jesus Christ will not fail to bring about the conversion of the world and, and such like that. So, yeah, I, I, and then there's also uh, the other statements, which is few will be saved and uh, very pessimistic views um, f- throughout uh, certain texts of eschatology and scripture. So I, I just go back and forth. I, I go back and forth every single day when it comes to whether I'm going to be optimistic or pessimistic. And I don't think I'll ever uh, figure it out. So do you lose any credence from disagreement with your epistemic peers or superiors? Um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I've, I've been able to have good disagreements with, with people. I mean, there's some people that it's just impossible to, to disagree with them. There's some people on the internet who, who do this sort of stuff that, or on Twitter or whatever, that just are so uh, fragile. They're very fragile. So disagreement with them. Uh, for example, a few months ago, I, I just happened to post a meme poking fun of Protestants and just a lot of Protestants were just like, rah, 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 like, you're so stupid and I hate you. And uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. But I mean, with like Byzantine Scotist, uh, we obviously disagree uh, with, with even the other Paul. We obviously disagree. And we have our disagreements, but we're, we're still able to stay friends. And, uh, and I think that's a, a good trait to be able to have. Origin considered infant baptism an apostolic practice. Very interesting. I know St. Cyprian did also consider it an apostolic practice too. I just don't think that that, uh, that that view really... I Okay, I'll make a distinction. Good. Good distinctions. I'll make a distinction here. So I hold that it's an apostolic practice, but I don't hold that it's the only apostolic practice. And what I mean by that is... Uh, Obviously, I think the apostles um, baptized infants in baptizing households. I absolutely believe that. But um, I don't think that 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 was necessarily universal practice. We we have evidence to the contrary when it comes to many of the Christians of the third and fourth and fifth centuries. And that it really was much later when it was like, okay, infant baptism isn't only a practice. It is the only practice. And we are binding you to the fact that it is sinful not to practice that. That's what the Nouvelle Theologie did. Ugh. Went back to the sources and discarded genuine developments. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you're getting it now. I'm glad everybody's getting it now. That's that's basically what the, the Nouvelle Theologie, look at look at what they were reprinting. With like look at look at what the ressourcement was was going after. Like they were, they were going after Orthodox authors, except the origin. Um, but Orthodox authors, such as Saint Gregory of Nyssa, he's he'd been an Orthodox author, and they were reprinting their works, who, which had some problematic aspects to it before the Church had ultimately decided on this development. So we had genuine developments, like we developed the way from. Universalism. Universalism used to be a illicit view, and some people held to it, but the church finally rejected it. And then now, now look what we have. Dare we hope? 
no, that's really dumb. We don't hope. Going to my first Anglican morning prayer now. How does that make you feel? I where is it? Um, Paul, you would really like this. My wife bought it for me. Why can I never find my books? I'm the worst with my bookshelf. I'm I basically just never read my books, obviously. But look at this right here. Book of Common Prayer. Okay, okay, okay. Greek Book of Common Prayer. It was, uh, I think this was from like the, I mean, I think like the 16th or 17th century when this was done. It's very interesting. Um, but yeah, I have a, a Greek Book of Common Prayer. So you got to get yourself one of those. Okay. I like these two, uh, two comments from the other Paul. Christian is one of my best buds and I love his intelligence. Your mom gay. I can't get over the fact that you came out Anglican. You know, that, that was one of the most controversial moves. Exactly. We can still be friends, Bonaventure. Even though you're a Bonaventurian. Hippolytus thought at infant baptism was an apostolic practice. I agree. I agree that infant baptism is an apostolic practice. What's your thoughts on St. Stephen being an exception to baptism or generation, considering he seems to have signs of regeneration before he is baptized in Acts? Okay, so let me see. I think I know the section where St. Thomas covers such a question. If I don't find it in like one minute, then I'll just give up on the question. Okay, the effects of baptism. Those who receive baptism. Let us see. Okay. Sorry, I will, I'm just trying to... I'm not as familiar with Tertiopars as I am with the rest of the Summa. Yeah, I can't. I cannot. Oh, wait, maybe. Maybe that is it. No, I can't find it. Dang it. Well, sorry about that. I cannot find where St. Thomas covers that question. Darn nabbit. Okay, I'm going to stop looking for it. Ask me, ask me at another one. I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll just read through the whole tractal baptism again. Was Saint Stephen circumcised? Yeah, but my first thought, if you're gonna if just off the cuff, my my thought on uh 
St. Stephen uh, being an exception to baptism or regeneration, considering he seems to have signs of regeneration before he is baptized in Acts, is that I would say he was, um, he, he can still be given uh, actual grace, which actual grace is ultimately what leads you to the sacraments. Um, you can still you can still have that uh, before the actual administration of baptism. So, does the Book of Common Prayer have the thirty nine articles? Yes, if you just go to the end, usually most of them. Let me see. I guess I'll look in my Greek Book of Common Prayer just to be cool. But does this does this one even have it? I don't think it even has it. That is that is interesting. Yes, it doesn't have it. Yeah, but if you look at the back of most of your Book of Common Prayers, then you can find it. You know what? I just read the front cover of this, and this was actually one which was translated in 1923. So what I'm thinking is that this was one which was prepared for uh, giving it to the, the Greeks. So they didn't want to put the 39 articles in it because the Greeks would think that a lot of uh, what was written in there is heretical. Okay. What is the best approach you have found to discuss Vatican II and post-Vatican II papal scandals with those who posit post-conciliar discontinuity? I think the best approach is to first recognize um, it's to first recognize that there have been many scandalous popes in the history of the church like if you just look at the Borgia Pope or any number of Renaissance popes there's been plenty of bad actors who have been in the papacy I'm not saying uh, I don't I don't judge the Pope. I, I'm not in that position, but principally I will uh, I that has been the consistent judgment of uh, of the church when it comes to the popes of that era. So it's entirely possible to have popes who in their actions are doing bad things. So what I want to discuss rather is what have they taught? What has the popes taught? And I think once you get down to actually reading the documents, then what you have is you can kind of split it up into very few propositions because people will normally say things like uh, Vatican do dumb, Vatican do bad. It's like, okay, let's, let's look through the documents of Vatican II and tell me exactly where you think things are bad. And they'll point to the sections. You'd be like, oh, okay. Um, do you think it's, it's bad that Lumen Gentium is talking about Muslims adoring God. Okay, well, let's look at Bellarmine. He says the same thing. And then you can show some continuity on some of these. Then other ones are not as clear. And it's only in that kind of final case that you need to go the development of doctrine route. Um, but yeah, Vatican II clearly develops and brings to conclusion a lot of the debates that for some of them have been going on for uh, 1800 years at that point. And they settle the debates. There's, there's nothing wrong with that because there hadn't been a definitive judgment on those certain questions. So that is, uh, that is my, uh, 
question. That's my answer. What is your opinion of the old Catholic Church ordaining Anglican clergy in Europe and North America? Would the Vatican relook into it? So I've actually heard, um, trying to, I, I did one time read a document when I was studying into Anglican orders. I did read a document where there was a dubia from a Anglican priest who had been actually in the same exact situation. Anglican priest ordained by an old Catholic bishop. And he asked the Holy Office whether whether he had valid orders, and they said yes. So on the on this question, I think it's pretty cut and dry. But the question of the the episcopacy as a whole being recovered by uh, co consecration, there's just so many uh, so many questions to answer. The first one is the validity of the 1662 ordinal, which um, there hasn't been a judgment uh, on that. But uh, Pope Leo XIII was completely open to it being valid, but he basically said it didn't matter during his day. So the validity of the 1662 ordinal, and then obviously the 1928 and 79, and then um, whatever other other million prayer books are being used, because uh, there are uh, quite a few. But I would say the ordinal is probably one of the sections with the least amount of changes in it. So that that is the question that we need to be asked and then also whether um it's sufficient to have a valid co-consecrator which i think would be it would be sufficient because why else would you have co-consecrators and then the third one um would be whether per saltum ordinations make consecrations are valid whether a layman um can skip over uh the diaconate and the priesthood which i would say there's historical precedent to believing that so on the on the supposition that the 1662 and further ordinals are valid i would say yeah i have i really have no reason uh not to and um, interestingly enough the usccb has kind of picked up on the same thing there was they had uh a study on this question and they came to that same conclusion to say yeah we can we can hold the apostolic curia um but we can also um ask these questions now that we're in a new situation. Thoughts on Gavin Ortland and his arguments. I don't watch Gavin Ortland. I I am so sick of apologetics. I don't watch any of it anymore. I mean, I kind of used to like think it was like all cool and stuff. It was mostly from the Protestant side of wanting to own the papists, you know. But uh now I'm just I'm just so burnt out of all that stuff i'd rather just talk about the trinity with you guys for like two hours i think that's uh much more helpful although um it doesn't really get all the hype and excitement um so i try to make it at least as hype and exciting as i can but uh sometimes it's a bit difficult to uh to make inseparable operations like super super exciting do you want the 1952 Book of Common Prayer? I got one. 1952? That's interesting. Do you mean 1552? 1952? I've never even... Is like the is that the Canadian one? Nineteen fifty two. No, I'd have never never heard of a nineteen fifty two. Book of Common Prayer. That is very interesting. I've never heard of that one. You'll have to tell me about that. I'm very interested. I'm sure one of the the liturgy, Anglican liturgy nerds on Twitter, there's like 5,000 of them, 
be able to answer your question. I agree with Han that Boniface the Ninth is objectively the worst pope. Well, do you know who my favorite pope is? Well, actually, I was my my feelings were really hurt um, because I was reading. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Probably won't be able to. You know how I am with trying to find quotes, but um, with reading about the Thomistic theses, and unfortunately, Pope. Benedict the Fifteenth. Here it is. Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth said that they were merely safe norms of intellectual guidance, and that they're not binding. So that makes me makes me really really sad. Um, let me see. The Pope did not. Uh, intend he he said that he did not intend to impose the twenty four theses as compelling internal assent, but as the doctrine preferred by the church. So that is that is very sad for me, very very sad for me. So Benedict the fifteenth might be the worst pope. I'm just joking. I'm, I'm I'm not serious that he's the worst pope because he didn't bind the faithful to the Thomistic theses. What's my favorite work on of Aristotle? And if it's metaphysics, why are you wrong? <laughs> I like um, probably the one that I've spent the most time in is because I was thinking a lot about anthropology would be his work De Anima, his work on the soul. I really, I really didn't remember uh, enjoying reading it. So when you were Anglican, why weren't you Lutheran? Um, I really cared about Catholicity and I know that sounds like, like super like clickbaity sort of uh, like, ha ha ha. Like you're not, you're not, you don't care about Catholicity. Uh, but I really cared about Catholicity. So I had concluded that um, I didn't really agree with a lot of the reformed arguments given against the Episcopacy. Uh, historically, I think they're really grasping at straws. So uh, I, I had the basic intuition that I needed a bishop, which was consecrated by other bishops. And I couldn't get that in Lutheranism unless I was like Swedish Lutheran. No, is it Norwegian or Swedish? I think it might be both. All the, like there's, I know there's multiple Scandinavian groups who had valid orders and then like totally shot themselves in the foot by, by consecrating a bunch of women. Benedict the ninth, not Boniface the ninth. Whoops. Boniface the Tenth. Who is it? Why? Are you... Oh wait. Oh no. That's that's not Paul Adventure. Your guys's profile pictures look very alike. Okay. So, as a hard corruptionist, do you think you'll experience the intermediate state constituted by your disembodied soul, or do you think you'll immediately awaken at the resurrection slash last judgment? Well, it would be an error. Soul sleep is an error. Um, it's a severe error. And it has been, um, I'm not sure at what level it has been condemned, but I know it's at least a theological error. Um, so that is, that, that's not okay to, to hold to when it comes to soul sleep. But uh, yeah, so I think immediately um, I will experience the beatific vision, uh, my senses being supplied.
by um, union with the divine essence. That's that's what I that's what I believe. So Pope Adrian has to be in my top five. You know what? Who my favorite pope is? Pope Honorius, just to troll the Orthodox. What do you think of the assertions commonly made that Cardinal St. Newman was a modernist? Well, I think it comes from people who, well, I, I think first, there, there's really two classes of people. First, it comes from people who do not know at all what modernism is. Uh, so they haven't read Pashendi. Uh, if you just read Pashendi, there are, I can probably think of maybe two areas in Pashendi where it'd be like questionable, like, okay, Cardinal Newman might have said something like this. This is a bit, uh, this is a bit weird. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, let's think, think through this. So reading Pashendi and knowing what modernism is, is very important. And then second, you have to make proper distinctions between reading what the modernists say on this certain question, for example, on uh, the development of doctrine, that's a big one people point to being a modernist in. It's like, okay, what do the modernists say about the development of doctrine? And then on the other hand, what do the uh, generally uh, people of um, wonderful orthodoxy, like uh, Cardinal Perone and his comments on Newman's uh, evolution of Catholic dogma. Perone, he, he is a... Um, he was a dogmatic theologian. Uh, nobody, nobody is ever accusing him of modernism. He is a staunch anti-modernist, and he thought Newman was fine on uh, development of doctrine. But that's besides the point. So look at on the one end what the modernists said, on the other end what the Orthodox said, and by Orthodox I mean Orthodox Catholics, what what they said um, on these certain questions, and then okay, let's compare Newman's writings. And let's see whether he is making the same distinctions that the modernists are making or whether he's making the same distinctions that the Orthodox are making. And I think with that sort of study, it becomes a bit clear. It comes very clear, actually, that Newman was not saying what the modernists were saying. It's just the modernists couched a lot of their theology in Catholic language. So it's actually um, the modernists who are trying to look like uh, Newman and all the Orthodox, not uh, Newman uh, looking like the modernists. I have a biography of Benedict XV. Him and Pius XI are barely ever talked about for some reason. Pius XI was amazing too. Oh wait, no, no, no. Was Pius XI actually cringe? Was I? Did I mix him up with a different one? Was Pius XI the one who brought back um, facing Rome for the apostolic blessing? Or was that Pius XII? I think it was Pius XII. I can't. I always mix the two up. I'm not talking about soul sleep. Oh, you're not talking about soul sleep. Okay. <laughs> Newman was a modernist based. I love modernism now. St. Vincent of Lorraine was a modernist. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, and you know what else I just realized is Vatican I actually teaches the development of doctrine. Um, and no, I won't elaborate on that. <laughs>
I, I made like a tweet a while ago and none of you guys liked it or shared. Actually, it was liked by a few people, but none. it didn't catch any. Uh, let's see if I go on my Facebook. I post like nothing on Facebook, but I think I posted that on Facebook. Why is the other Paul posting about how it's the Lord's Day? On Facebook. I'm not going to dox his Facebook, though. No, my personal page. Not. And since we're talking about modernism, I have to bring up the meme after this. So I'll have a brief intermission to let all your questions come in. Oh, look, my dad. Uh, my dad shot a turkey. Look on him. Okay, here it is. And I've seen people interpret it in this sense. So Vatican One, it says, let then the intelligence, science, and wisdom of each and all, of individuals and of the whole church, in all ages and all times, increase and flourish in abundance and vigor, but simply in its own proper kind. That is to say, in one and the same doctrine, one in the same sense, one in the same judgment. Uh, judgment. So it's seeming to talk about increasing and flourishing of, um, especially increasing of the uh, of the doctrine of the church, but in the same doctrine. So it seems like Vatican I, I don't know. I've seen people interpret it in that sense. So I think it might be a little bit of a stretch. Um, but again, uh, if they're interpreting it in that sense, then then there you go. So Vatican I might have been teaching development of doctrine right there. Oh, yeah. And since we're talking about modernists, I need to bring up the the modernist, the uh, Nouvelle Theologie meme. I will never cease uh, bringing that up every time we talk about modernism. Okay, I'll share my screen real quick. Stop sharing. Okay. There we go. Be with delight, seeing what's to come. The image of the dead, dead ends in my mind. Okay, there you go. 27 people liked it. Look at that. And then this favorite quote from Lagrange. It is evident that Father de Lubac has never explained the Summa Theologica article by article. So we will win, kings, against the Nouvelle Theologie. Okay, so I will, I will continue now. So what is the Catholic rationale for baptizing infants who seemingly can't profess faith nor repent, especially when the acts of the apostles seems to mandate those preconditions? That is a very good uh, um, question. So I guess I will take the first part and then I'll take the second part because uh, I was at one point a Reformed Baptist. So I needed to be convinced into this. So I have heard a lot of the, the arguments. So, um, what is the Catholic rationale? So I'll begin with that. 
so the Catholic rationale uh, that I've seen, interestingly enough, I did an article on this, but historically, the argumentation of the Reformed from covenantal theology wasn't really the argumentation that was that was actually used, interestingly. Um, but the argument was kind of a precept of charity, because the the major premise is is that baptism saves. So the fact that baptism gives the virtues and that uh, baptism cleanses original sin from the soul. So out of charity, we give baptism to children. So that is generally the, uh, the Catholic argument. And for the second half of that, especially when the Acts of the Apostles seems to mandate those preconditions. So uh, we have to make a distinction between uh, something which is occasional and normative, and then uh, make a further distinction when it comes to uh, occasional laws. We have to find the, um, the reason for those laws. So uh, is the, the call to um, repent and to have and to profess faith, is that a universal mandate? Well, that would be something that would need to be proved, um, but I will simply deny the proposition because it's, I don't think it's anything, something that can be proved. So on, on to the second half, let's assuming that it's occasional, what is the reason for it? So the, the reason for uh, professing faith and repenting is because most of the times you get these calls, they're in sermons and um, when it comes to somebody who is an adult, those are the conditions, is that they profess faith and then repent, do penance. Those are the, the preconditions for baptism. So since they're talking to adults and it's a sermon, that would be um, a completely rational thing to say. While even, even if you do hold to uh, infant baptism being licit, is to tell people to repent and to have faith. So that's kind of uh, my my answer right there. Okay, so three gifts, three rules. If you believe you, the human person, will be experiencing a disembodied afterlife in the immediate state, what's the actual difference between a survivalist view and a corruptionist view? Okay, 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 okay. I, I get what you're saying now. I understand. I was being dumb. I'm very sorry. So when it comes to um, what I am... Uh, what is what personality is because when we refer to i we're really talking about personality um i would be somebody who would have a human nature and um when it comes to the i behind the personality it would be the principle in which uh that of operation in the human nature so in a sense Yes, I would still be I, because I would be that principle of merely intellective and not sensitive or um, or uh, vegetative or animal movement. By animal, I mean a bodily movement. So in a sense, yes, I would be I, but I would not be the, the full principle of a human person. So I'm, it's only improperly uh, speaking and then after a certain um, manner of uh, appearance, not really a manner of reality. So I hope, I hope that makes sense. Um, I hope that makes sense because uh, 
with, with the nature of of personality because i would still be a, a there would still be a principle of action in my soul so 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 yeah that would that would be that would contain personality although it wouldn't be a possessor of a full person so i guess there'd be some sort of uh strong distinction that i wouldn't necessarily uh, actually i would call it a real distinction between person and personality um so yeah that that's just me i'm just rambling now i'm just kind of thinking out loud so don't don't take any of that uh for so i thought corruptionism held that the soul is its own person um entity that lives on but you are not your soul as saint thomas says yes yeah, so i think the the uh, we we can yes yeah <laughs> yes uh, you are not your soul uh so um you, you wouldn't be you wouldn't have the complete uh person so you would not technically be a person but i think honestly the distinction might be a bit linguistic but when, when it comes to like the the franciscan views on this the the franciscans um they have a different underlying metaphysics especially when it comes to the way that distinction works and the relation between um, essence and existence between being and essence. Um, so I, I think that some of those underlying metaphysical issues need to be discussed, but I'm not really uh, prepared to discuss those. Who's your favorite Jesuit besides Bellarmine or Vasquez? Um, all the guys that put together the um, SDS, those guys are amazing. So, Father De Lubac, more like Father. <laughs> okay, I can't really say that. So, may I ask why you chose the song Little Dark Age? Well, the reason I chose the song Little Dark Age is because it's based. Um, it's a, it's a very based song and interesting story. The, the cantor at the, um, the church I got received into, he actually was in the music video for little dark age. So there you go. It's on his Wikipedia page. Who will be the new Pope? I don't know. Honestly, I have no idea. Oh, Elijah. I was just thinking about you. Elijah, I haven't seen you in a while. Do you ask a question up further? I don't think I've seen you in like forever. Okay, so who will be the new Pope? I actually honestly have no idea. Who do I want to be the new Pope? Um, Bishop Stephen Lopes. That's who I want to be the new Pope. Okay. How would a Thomist explain Thomas when he says the divine relations are identical to the essence of God? This seems to lead to modalism. Yes, it would. Uh, well, okay. It would seem to lead to modalism if uh, if you were using that language. But when it comes to something being identical, uh, the way in which we usually use identical is something which neither has real nor virtual distinction. So neither real nor rational distinction. That's how we use identical. So for example, um, if I said, 
I, I think uh, the example St. Thomas uses is that this is a shirt and this is a garment. There's there's neither uh, real nor logical uh, distinction, but they're identical. But when it comes to a, uh, a rational distinction in something, because there's a rational distinction between the essence and then the subsisting divine relations, which are uh, the persons, um, he would say it would be as if you were speaking about, um, let's say, a certain action. So let's say I pick up this can. Now, me picking up this can, that's an action, right? Or a certain act. I'll use act. There's it's a certain act. And now there's an action, which is me picking up. And then there's the passion, which is this can being picked up. So action, passion. Now, we wouldn't say that my, my, the motion of my hand and the picking up of the can would be the same, um, would be identical to each other. But, uh, so, but also, um, there isn't anything uh, prior to the mind which would uh, really distinguish the two, which is why we call it a virtual distinction. So I think a better illustration of that is actually um, what... Uh, Father Lagrange brings up, which would be a triangle. So uh, when it comes to the the angle would be um, the subsisting relation sharing the the one hypostasis and the angle is really only um, the the area of the triangle is the uh, the divine essence in this analogy. And then the the angle is the uh, is the person giving, the divine essence to the others. So really uh, between the angle and the triangle, there isn't really uh, any real distinction, but there is a rational distinction that we can make in the mind. But this argument only really works uh, if you, if you make, um, if you collapse a rational and a real distinction and that, well, if you uh, collapse, collapse the three categories of irrational real distinction, and then um, an identity so, yeah, I hope that I hope that made sense. I, I feel like I've been rambling on most of my questions. So if that didn't make sense, just keep pressing me on it. How good are you with the philosophy of religion and Aquinas's five ways in particular? I would say I'm okay on it. This is in question 28 of the Summa. Yeah, I guess I will. I guess I'll check out. I'm assuming you're talking about Prima Pars. Question 28 would... That's after it would be about divine relations. Yeah, I just uh, read that with Lagrange's commentary on it. So I, I don't, I don't see what the problem is as long as. Uh, oh, wait, wait, that that's what I was going to tell you. Okay, in question twenty-eight, I want you in Article One to read the response to objection three. I think is where he explains this. Uh, objection four. See, I don't always remember everything in the Summa. So yeah, with uh, question 28, uh, article one, read the response to objection four. Because I think um, you're, you're saying that um, a rational um, distinction is the same as identity, which it is not. All of your prop friends are Anglican now. They're all gay-pilled, I guess. 
again, um, with identical, I, I don't think um, you're meaning identical the same way that Thomas is meaning identical. Because by identical, he's allowing a rational distinction. So that's that's why. Um, and then, uh, because if the divine relations are identical to God's essence, how can the divine persons be distinct? Because even with a uh, with a action, um, with with because analogously, remember the action and passion, the the actor or the action in in that analogy would be what's called the ter terminus a quo. So the the terminus from which, and then the the passion would be the terminus ad quem, the person to which. So the terminus a quo and the terminus ad quem, they would be um, related in a certain way that would be really really distinct from one another. So if if that if that makes any sense, I'm sorry if if that didn't make any sense. Do you think Protestants like C.S. Lewis are more likely to be saved than damned? Yeah, I saw you ask me this question on on the last uh, stream too. I just didn't want to hurt any feelings. Um, I think that's a very. I, I'm not going to make a judgment on the matter, but objectively speaking, from from what we can possibly know and the principles which we can be given, somebody who is invincibly ignorant of the truth and um has an act of perfect contrition can be saved even apart from baptism because that would just be baptism of desire so um we have to ask ourselves whether c.s lewis could, oh, i just burnt my fingers whether c.s lewis was invincibly ignorant from the truth of the roman church and I think that is very hard to substantiate, but again, it's not impossible. So C.S. Lewis has kind of been like a, a, a canonized Protestant uh, saint for, for a lot of Catholics. Oh, gosh. Man, these matches are the worst. They burn so fast. So I hope that, I hope that answers your question. I am, uh, I'm trying to light my candle. And it has two wicks, but one of the wicks is like pulled on in itself. So I had to like hold it there for a really long time and it burnt my fingers. That's terrible. Okay, but you guys don't care about that. Thoughts on the new natural law movement? I haven't really, uh, I haven't really read about that. I exist. I'm, I'm very, I'm very glad you exist, Elijah. I'm very glad. I was very worried about you. I thought you had died or something. Uh, have you read the book Tudors and Stuarts by Reese? If so, do you think it gives a good view of Queen Mary? I have not. I think the next pope might be African because they're relatively conservative and also very popular amongst the liberals for their evangelization efforts. I'm a big fan of Cardinal Turkson. For some reason, when I read Cardinal Turkson, I thought it said Tucker Carlson. I don't know. Uh, maybe I have a problem with reading or something. I just thought you you thought the next pope was going to be Tucker Carlson. Yeah, because with the with the liberals, it's going to be mud diversity points having a uh, having an African pope. But for the conservative, it's going to be like, okay, we can we can have an African pope all you want. Turkson is horrible. Oh, there's a little bit of a fight. 
have you read Dr. Kuhn's paper on the Trinity divine persons as relational qua objects? If you did thoughts, I have not read Dr. Kuhn's paper on the Trinity, but I do not trust anybody in this world who doesn't use traditional Trinitarian language. And I will refuse to trust them. And I never will trust them because the church spent a very long time coming up with this language. So Anybody who is presuming to come up with their own language um, about the Trinity, I just don't trust them at all. Not at all. And I never will. So I don't know who Dr. Coons is. What is his uh, tradition? Let me see. He's Catholic. I mean, it's entirely possible that uh, he is just... So it's... Divine is University of Texas at Austin. That is, there's actually a lot of Thomas there. So let me, Robert C. Coons, there you go, philosopher. Okay, there you go. He has also advocated for academic freedom. Let me see what is so coons has been involved in debates over the issue of academic freedom okay uh western civilization great books okay i don't know why it doesn't say anything about his ecclesial um background I'm not sure whether somebody in the comments would probably already let me know, but I'm just Googling it to figure out. Is he the, is he the Robert Coons that became a Catholic? Oh, based. Oh, I definitely agree with him now. Based convert. Yes, it's entirely possible that he's just saying the, the traditional Thomistic view as relational qua objects. But yeah, I, I won't, I won't comment on it because I haven't read it, but since he is Catholic, I do kind of trust him now. I hope we get another pious and I hope we get another pious attempt. Oh yeah. And it is uh it is the feast day of St. Pius X and my wife is making a cake for tonight. So I'm sorry that you guys cannot get any of my wife's cake for St. Pius X's feast day, but uh, she does that on feast days. She makes cakes. So St. Pius X, pray for us. Let me... He might be a John Paul I liberal. Who is a John Paul I liberal? <laughs> yeah, most cardinals are liberal. New here, great channel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Man, Mazda. That's based. So, like, the car company watches Militant Thomas. So, you guys all need to buy a Mazda. You know, I own a Mazda, and it makes me very sad that I don't have an American car. All of these foreign cars. Okay, have you ever seen any videos or read any papers by Joe Schmidt, Majority of Reason, Refuting Divine Simplicity? Majesty of Reason, uh, Refuting divine simplicity i have not but um yeah i have not i'm just gonna keep it there but i haven't really um 
Well, I mean, obviously, I believe in divine simplicity, but I haven't done like a ultra long term study on it like I have with uh, Trinitarian theology or the incarnation. I probably should do that eventually. Darn, was hoping to ask you on your thoughts on whether regular cigarettes are better than rolled ones, but you're only lighting a candle. Well, one of these times, I'll get myself a pack of ciggies for one of my streams. Pope Tucker Carlson, based. Turkson is infamously anti-contraception, based. Gay marriage, based. Female ordinations, based. Community for the remarried, based. Okay, I read Tucker Carlson also. So how does the church define being invincibly ignorant of the truth? Okay. Uh, I think uh, Alphonsus Liguori writes about this. I, I Again, I'll only spend like 45 seconds actually trying to look for it. And if I can't find it, then I'll just uh, go off the cuff. But uh, so on conscience, I do remember. Um, oh, no, no. He talks about invincible, invincible. Um, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't talk about that. OK, let me. Hugh. I know I've read somebody on on like giving a, who gave a really good definition of invincible ignorance. So I, I'm going to be very sad if I can't, if I can't uh, find it. Maybe it was a section of Aquinas. Ah, it is. It was his on the, the, the causes of sin. There you go. So it's going to be... Um, Priya uh, Prima Secundae, question 76, article 2. So Prima Secundae, question 76, article 2. Let's go. Whether ignorance is a sin, I think this gives us a good enough definition to work with. Okay, there we go. And before before you ask, um, before you ask, this is Aquinas.cc. If you wanna, if you wanna know, okay, whether ignorance is a sin. So let's ignorance differs from nescience. So nescience would be no science. So not knowing, ignorant differs from nescience, and that nescience denotes mere absence of knowledge. Wherefore, whoever lacks knowledge about anything can be said to be nescient about it, in which sense Dionysius puts nescience in the angels. On the other hand, ignorance denotes privation of knowledge, i.e. lack of knowledge of those things that one has a natural aptitude to know. So, for example, when technically speaking, when we think about the divine essence, we don't have ignorance about the divine essence because we don't have that natural aptitude to know the divine essence. We actually have nescience, technically speaking. 
nascentia um, uh, about the divine essence. So ignorance, so that's the first distinction we need to make, is that ignorance is about not knowing something that you have the natural aptitude to know. So now what's the invincible part? He's going to get into this a little bit later, but I just, I'll keep reading because this is all good stuff. Some of these we are under obligation to know. These to which, which without the knowledge of which, we are unable to accomplish a due act rightly. So some things we have the obligation to know. We don't only have the aptitude to know, but we have the obligation to know that. Wherefore, all are bound in common to know the articles of faith and the universal principles of right. And each individual is bound to know the matters regarding his duty or state. So both natural and supernatural things we can be bound to know. We're bound to know that God is a trinity. We're bound to know about the incarnation. We're bound to know um, about a lot of things. So again, making this distinction, bound to know. Meanwhile, there are other things which a man may have a natural aptitude to know, yet he is not bound to know them, such as geometrical theorems and contingent particulars, except in some individual cases. So um, when it comes to uh, things in which we're not bound to know, um, but have the natural aptitude to know, those could be things like, uh, let's say, um, trigonometry. We're not bound to know that. But in some individual cases, we actually are bound to know that, such as if you were taking a class on trigonometry and you have you have a certain obligation to fulfill that duty to your teacher to study trigonometry. Now it is evident that whoever neglects to have or to do what he ought to have to or do commits a sin of a mission. So with the those things. So first, it's not nescience. We have the natural aptitude to know it. Second, we're on the obligation to know it. Those things would be a sin of omission if we neglect to know it. Notice neglect. It's an act of the will, which is choosing not to. It's it's really a um a slowness of what's called the irascible appetite. Irascible appetite. That is, we are not um choosing the good because of some something that's in our way. So let's say uh, it's it's kind of difficult to uh, to know about the Trinity because it's uh, because um, I don't know. Uh, it would be really hard to uh, read a book about it or to go to catechism, a class about it or to uh, memorize the Nicene Creed or to read the Athanasian Creed. I don't know, whatever, whatever it may be, because when we we're talking about bound to know the, the Trinity, it's it's very, the very simple parts of it, not know like the very complicated parts of it. So that's what I mean. Wherefore, through negligence, ignorance, wait, wherefore, through negligence, ignorance of what one is bound to know is a sin. Whereas it is not imputed as a sin to man if he fails to know what he is unable to know. So, whereas it is not imputed to sin, as a sin to man if he fails to know what he is unable to know. Consequently, ignorance of such like things is called invincible because it cannot be overcome by study. So that is what invincible ignorance is. It is something which we have the aptitude to know, which we are bound to know, but there is some sort of impedi impediment which is in our way where we are unable to know it. So let me think of an example. Let's say you have somebody who is just 
absolutely brainwashed is like held in a cage absolutely brainwashed or uh, i don't know somebody uh one of the native american well, indians one of the indians american indians whatever the word is to use one of one of them like 3000 well, i don't know like 1500 years ago um didn't show up to the council of chalcedon so he doesn't know about the proper article of faith regarding the incarnation he doesn't have sacred scripture and blah 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 that would be something that he cannot overcome by study so that would be an example of invincible ignorance, which is quite different than uh, than how a lot of people speak of invincible ignorance. So we'll see like, oh, um, like this this uh, Protestant scholar, he must have invincible ignorance. Well, <laughs> he can overcome it by study and he has the duty to know it. So that's pretty impossible for this reason, such like ignorance, it not being voluntary, since it is not in our power to be rid of it. It is not a sin. Wherefore, it is evident that no invincible ignorance is a sin. On the other hand, vincible ignorance is a sin. If it be about matters, one is bound to know, but not if it be about things one is not bound to know. So vincible ignorance has to do with something that one has a natural aptitude to know, one um, is bound to know, and one can know, but he decides not to. That being an act of the will, um, would be a sin. But invincible ignorance, I guess we can make a further distinction. There's a certain type of invincible ignorance which uh, which would um, qualify for uh, precluding damnation. And there one that there's one that isn't like invincible ignorance isn't some free ticket to heaven. That's not how it works. So it has to be um, it can come in two types. So the first I'll call saving invincible ignorance. The, the, I haven't uh, found a good good language in the tradition to describe this. But with the, what is, it's glaze for the cake, for the cake you're making? For, mm. Oh, it's so good. Whose feast day is it today, Lexi? Pope Pius X. Pope Pius X. Okay. Oh, that's so delicious. What was I saying? Get, get yourselves a wife, boys. It's really nice. Okay. So on the first hand, you could say there's saving um, invincible ignorance. So I would say when it comes to saving invincible ignorance, that would be something where somebody uh, has a natural aptitude to know it. Somebody is bound to know it. There is some impediment in his way to knowing it. But if it were to be that... Um, that that impediment was removed, he would know it. And then on the other hand, there would be a certain type of invincible ignorance that wouldn't be saving. And I'm using saving here in a very loose sense because I can't think of a better word to describe it. Would be um, the, the type which would be something which you have the natural aptitude to know, something which you are bound to know, something which you uh there's some impediment in your way and if the impediment is removed you would fall into invincible ignorance so there you go that so, so something which even if the impediment is removed you would still fall into invincible ignorance so that's what would be um what invincible ignorance is right there so i hope that was helpful although i did go a bit um i see like half of the people left so uh 
So have you read the book Tudors and Stuart? Didn't I just answer this question by M.M. Reese? If so, do you think it gives a good view of Queen Mary? I have not. I'm sorry. Thoughts on the congruous position that many held to do during the De Auxilii East controversy. It seems to correct both Molina and Banez. Uh, my, uh, again, my problem with the congruous position is that uh, it's going to fall. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give the same arguments against the congruous position that I would give against the Molinist position. And the chief one of these is the fact that there is no um, grounding in the decree of God. And uh, that that's just that's just the case. It doesn't matter if you uh, if you have all of these congruent circumstances that you're able to place by it. If the will isn't rendered from potency to act by a certain um, divine virtue or divine power, then it's not going to um, it's not going to be rendered into act. And then it's just not going to work. So it's going to be the same objection that I'm going to give. Today is Pius V. Oh, no. Did she mess it up? Let me let me just Google this real quick. I could have swore I saw this Pius X. What feast day is Pius X? 21st of August. It's not the 21st of August. Yeah, it's today. It's Pius V. Man, that's crazy. And he was a Dominican too. So that's actually kind of funny that she messed those up. But I could have swore she had this calendar. She had like this calendar that she had downloaded with all the feast days. So I guess I need to find out where she got that calendar from. Because I looked at the calendar and it said Pope St. Pius X. So I guess Pope St. Pius V, pray for us. Share the cake, bro. Nah, dude. My cake. Get out of here. Smash that like button. It isn't Pius X, it's Pius V. Okay, Bonaventure. Okay. <laughs> Wait, Copo, you have uh, you have cars in Eastern Europe? I had no idea. I drive a Toyota and it makes me happy I don't drive an American car. Well, yeah. Okay. Yes, I also got told it's apparently the name of a pagan, quote-unquote, god. Some Protestants were really mad, lol. Have you read the original drafts for Vatican II? No, but, bro, bully, <laughs> stop asking the same question. Uh, but have you ever read the original drafts for Vatican II? I have not. I have not. But are you talking about like the um, the drafts that were that were all like scrapped? Are you talking about those? I heard those were like amazing. I heard those were really good. Like they were just like pages and pages of footnotes to like historical documentation stuff. Those are really good. But what I really want to look at is the the drafts for Vatican One. Since Vatican One was finished early, there are so many more things that they were going to condemn. Like, um, like one that comes up often is Gunther's view of the Trinity, which was condemned by the Holy Office, but it was it was going to be anathematized at Vatican One. And um, Gunther's view of the Trinity was basically social trinitarianism. Interestingly enough, so we almost had a, uh, a condemnation 
at an ecumenical council of social Trinitarianism. Will you ever do an extra Ecclesium Nolus Salus stream? Uh, uh, possibly. It depends on how much. If all of my patrons, like at once, like send me messages telling me to do one, I would consider maybe doing it. Have you read the book Tudors and Stewarts by M.M. Reese? I actually have. Yeah, yeah. I've read that book like five times. If so, do you think it gives a good view of Queen Mary? Um, no, I don't think it gives a good view. I think Queen, Queen Mary was was really good. So, uh, yeah, that's that's um, that's my thoughts on it. So, I bullied Trent Horn yesterday. Based. Based. What? I mean, one of these times... I'm just thinking about like the first time I'm on a stream with like a like a boomer, not 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 that turn horns a boomer, but like a boomer or millennial sort of or Gen Xer kind of like like apologist, apologetics. Like uh, I'm waiting for one time I get on a stream with one of those, and then I start like bringing out all of the Zoomer fire on them, and then they 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 just don't know what to do. When, when like you're in a conversation with somebody and they're like, you know, that kind of sounds retarded to me. Like you, you just don't know what to do. You just get hit with it. And like the Zoomer humor and you, you just don't know what to do. Or like, you know, your position sounds super cringe. Not going to lie, dude. It kind of sounds kind of gay. Like they, they just don't know what to do. Could you do a stream on the path of salvation for those who have a genuine mental deficiency? Oh, Bonaventure, you're wondering about um, your path to salvation. Yeah, I can do a stream for you. I feel like that would be a good way to touch on uh, multiple topics such as sin, concupiscence. Yeah, it actually would be an invincible ignorance because that's the perfect example. Like Baptists, ask ask a Baptist about those with uh, like mental retardation or something like that. Uh, or uh, what, what's the, I can't even remember the term for it. Um, I just like the clinical term now that they use. Um, yeah, I don't think mental retardation is like the proper term to use. What, what would it be? Me mental disability. There, I'll just use that. Somebody with like a mental disability. Um, like that is a perfect example of somebody with invincible ignorance. If you don't think a Baptist believes invincible ignorance, just ask him about those. And they they will very quickly believe in invincible ignorance. So, is the happiness enjoyed by the separated soul and the beatific vision in some way incomplete slash imperfect? Is it in some way removed from us because we aren't fully man again until the resurrection? That is a good question. But I think when it comes to because when it comes to happiness, I think we have to define happiness. And traditionally, at least how St. Thomas defines happiness in Prima Secundae is going to be the resting. Basically, it's the resting of the soul in the uh, in the beloved object. That's going to be what happiness is. That's why our ultimate happiness is found in God, because we we have we have acquired the good and we have acquired and then rested in the good. 
So with the beatific vision, because it is a pure something which is purely intellectual, because happiness is something which is purely intellectual, then the union of the intellect with the divine essence, you'd be able to have a full and complete happiness. Although, if, if I may note this, the effects of the beatific vision won't be complete because there are the, the four effects on the body that that is given um, when, when you have the beatific vision. So um, it wouldn't be um, deficient for the, the part in which it is uh, effective on, if that makes sense. Because the part in which it is, like, will, will the beatific vision before the resurrection of the body be deficient when it comes to the subtlety of the body? Yes, it will be. Because, the, because we don't have a body to be uh, subtle <laughs> when it comes to be the, the effects of the beatific vision. But since happiness is in the intellect, then um, then you will be able to uh, have full and complete happiness even without the body. Okay. How you uh, describe saving invincible ignorance is how Bonaventure understood Abraham faith relating to the Trinity and the Incarnation. Yeah, that would be like uh, implicit faith. Um, yeah, I think, I, th I think, uh, when it, when it comes to what Bonaventure is describing, if I'm, if I'm thinking rightly, but yeah, when it comes to Abraham in the Trinity, I think Abraham explicitly believed in the Trinity and the incarnation, like no cap guys. I think honestly, Abraham believed that there was one divine essence in three persons. Like, like I am not joking with you guys right now. That's what I believe. And I believe that he believed in the incarnation too, that God would become man. So, uh, MT, AO, MT, what's Obama's last name? Um, just give me one second. Okay. Oh, okay, here it is. Um, okay, I'll share my screen. Actually, I can just copy and paste the link. Okay. What is Obama's last name? So, here you go. Okay, so as you see here, I wonder if my highlights show up. So, Barack would be his first name. And then Hussein would be his first middle name. And then Obama would be his second middle name. And then his last name is Two. Okay. So Two is his last name. Wait, Michelle Obama. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No way. Joe Biden's middle name is Robinette. And Michelle's middle name is Lavon. There's some interesting, like, look, the, the Chad, Donald, John, Trump versus the absolute cringe Robinette. <laughs> that is, that is shocking. I don't know how I didn't know that before. Okay. I'm not going to get distracted. Okay. So I probably can go for another 10 minutes, but I will star real quick. All the ones I want to answer. If you guys really have a super, super, super question you want me to answer, they're probably won't be able to answer like two more. Um, then throw in a super chat. But otherwise, I will just 
Um, I will just answer the ones that I really want to answer. Okay. Oh, man, there's a lot of... I start all the questions that I might answer. Okay, so I have 10 minutes, and there's nine questions. So I'll, I'll try to see how quick I can go, but I can't promise I'll get to all of them. Okay, I'll, I'll, first, first I'll give all the ones, the no ones. So, have you read any scholars like Dr. Michael Heiser arguing that the rock in Matthew is not Peter nor Christ, but the location of Mount Hermon? No, I haven't, but Michael Heiser is known for being a bit schizo. So, there you go. So, yeah, I don't really know about that one, so I'll unstar it. Oh, is it possible to pray for souls in limbo? Uh, no, because limbo is actually the, the highest circle of hell. So the souls in limbo um, are actually in hell. They're just not having any positive punishment. The only punishment is one of negation, which is the loss of vision. And they have the highest natural beatitude. So there's there's no really any use to pray for the souls in limbo because they are in hell, to be very clear. And uh, I wish I had my catechism of Pope Pius X on me right now because he has a really good. You know, boys, read the catechism, uh, Pope Pius X. It's really good. It really gets you like all of those like nice, quick and easy uh, distinctions. And the catechism of Pope Pius X, I've noticed like a quarter of the answers are just like, straight from Thomas Aquinas. It's very interesting. Even like his more obscure works. Like I've seen Pius X quote the most obscure works from St. Thomas. Like he was kind of a beast. Okay. Will the souls in limbo be saved after the resurrection? No, because they are in hell. So they will be um, given bodies and then sent back to limbo. So um, can I send you the link to the paper I mentioned? Yeah, go ahead. I'll read it. Um, you can you can DM me on Twitter or um, if you just want to throw in a YouTube comment or you can email me at apologiaanglicana at gmail.com um, or you could DM me on Discord. I'm pretty uh, open when it comes to people reaching out to me. Okay, now I have, let me look at the Okay, so I have these four questions to deal with, and there's no way I can deal with all of them. I guess I'll I guess I'll deal with the D Wongs. So opinion on the dryness of certain neoscholastic manuals and the ressourcement reaction. <clears throat> so I think we have to. So I actually think a really good example. Where is it? Right here. The Outlines of Dogmatic Theology. This would be considered a theological manual. So if you go all the way to the end of it, go to the appendix, and always remember to go to christianbewagner.com slash shop and get this. I reprinted it because I thought it was so cool. Appendix. Look at this. Very interesting. Method of disputation. And I did a whole stream uh, on this method of disputation that is put out. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you? What that tells you is if you read Poll or if you read uh, the STS or if you read uh, Hunter or Sheban or or whatever manual you want to you, you want to read or if you read uh, Lagrange's commentaries or, or whatever it may be, whatever it may be with reading these is that a book functions 
in a certain way relating to pedagogy um different and it isn't taken in and of itself because these books just like the summa were meant to be the subject of both lecture and disputation so what you do is you you read the sections whatever they may be and then you would go to class and the professor would lecture take questions whatever 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 just like you would do in a modern university system. And then they would dispute about these in order to understand the inner logic about them. So how, do, how is that important when it comes to manuals? Well, what manuals were meant to do is manuals were meant to be kind of a one-stop shop to get you, okay, what is the thesis of the Catholic faith? What does the magisterium say about it? What is the uh, a good definition of it? What are the uh, biblical arguments for it? What are the theological arguments for it? What are the patristic arguments for it? What are the general objections? Who are the people that disagree? It gives you that general scope of this loci, this loci of a thesis or a doctrine. And then from that loci, you're supposed to debate and discuss it as a living doctrine. As a, so, so that is, it's, it's meant the... The manuals are not a terminus in themselves. They are uh, supposed to form you. Um, well, they're supposed to give you that. I always talk, make the distinction between the habit and then the content of a certain science. The manuals are the best when it comes to giving you the content of that. It gives you the content of theology very, very well. But when it comes to the habit of being a theologian, no, it's not the best. If you want to learn how to be the habit of a theologian, Read the patristic works that they cite. That's what the patristics are good for. Um, but uh, with with building that habit, their function was to take them and then to bring them into the classroom and to dispute about them, to make them live questions. And this is kind of the same way with the Summa. So they're not a terminus in themselves, but it's it's something to merely give you a, uh, a foundation in order to form that habitus of being a theologian. So the manuals in that sense are really, really good uh, because they're able to fulfill their function and don't don't have the manuals outside of that function of giving you the content of theology, but also don't have the manuals be the be all end all. The manuals are not the be all end all. Uh, if you're going to learn about the Trinity, and I myself, I've been reading a lot about the Trinity, reading Sheban, um, reading Hunter. Hall, Pohl, um, uh, Lagrange, uh, the Summa, Scotus, uh, Bonaventure, um, Richard of St. Victor, um, uh, Lonergan, uh, and, and others too. And those are giving, those are doing a really good job of giving me the content. But I guess I shouldn't have listed Richard of St. Victor in there because of this point. But in order to have the habitus of doing Trinitarian theology, am I going to go to Pole? Am I going to go to Suarez? Am I going to go to um, Hunter? No, I'm not going to go to them. I'm going to go to Hillary. I'm going to go to Athanasius. I'm going to go to Augustine. Because when it comes to theological inquiry and synthesis, that is where you go. And even there are certain works in St. Thomas which are really good with this. Not all of St. Thomas's works are written like the Summa. For example, if you read um, De Ratione's Fide, uh, book one, chapters three and four, they're able to give you that habit of doing Trinitarian theology. 
if you read Summa Contra Gentiles, book four, chapters one through 20, those are able to do the same. If you read Compendium Theologiae, book one, uh, starting around probably chapter 50 or 60 and going on for the next 20 or 30 chapters, those those are good ways in which to build that habit, that uh, that uh, very um, uh, disciplined order of thinking and of reasoning when it comes to a certain loci of theology. So as as I'm rambling on, um, uh, your answer is kind of, uh, uh, yeah, the and then uh, I guess I'll keep going. You know, heck it, I'm going to keep going. I don't need uh, I don't need time to eat dinner. But uh, with the resource mod and their reaction to the, the evil neo-scholastic manuals, misunderstanding everybody, blah, 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 blah. With, with all of that uh, discourse, you ever notice that you only had one generation of neo nouvelle theology? There's, there's no new generation of nouvelle theology that are just these absolutely brilliant knock-your-pants-off sort of guys like uh, Von Balthazar, De Lubac, Congar. Um, all those guys, they were very smart. Uh, Lonergan, uh, although Lonergan's kind of like, he's kind of between the two. He's not really like full, very extreme. Um, Cardinal Ratzinger, although he's another one who's kind of more, um, uh, more uh, central centered, you know. So you have, you have all of these guys and they're very brilliant, but why don't they have any brilliant disciples? You ever wonder that? You ever wonder why there aren't like, there, there's not another Ratzinger a younger rat singer, another younger, um, any, any really, any one of these new theology guys, there's not a next generation. There's not a next generation after that. The reasoning is be, is because the reason you had the first generation of new theology that were so brilliant and were so well theologically disciplined is because of the manuals is because of the method of disputation in the schools where they all went to school and learned like that. And that's why they were good theologians. And then they decided to absolutely cut the feet off of them themselves by getting rid of that. And then, um, and then after that, um, they weren't able to train their disciples in the same way they were trained. So they weren't as good of theologians. So that's why they, they kind of just cut themselves off. So do you think the neoscholastic manuals fail to create an adequate view, adequate philosophy of history? Greek fathers like St. Maximus seem to have a more developed view of history as a theodrama. Well, I, again, um, I think this is another, this is a problem with the, um, with a lot of the uh, resource mod and a lot of the Nouvelle Theology is they, they can't, I don't, I don't get why, but they just cannot, um, make distinctions in their minds of, okay, this is the proper uh, sort of um, method of doing this, or this is, this is okay in its proper context. Like obviously with, with St. Maximus, the confessor, he is one of those thinkers, amazing, amazing thinker that is going to form you um, habitually into a good theologian by reading him. He is one of those thinkers and he is to be read in that context. But he isn't the best when it comes to uh, he's not the best when it comes to getting all the content of philosophy, you know, of theology. He's not the best with that. There's thinkers who have summarized his arguments more succinctly, uh, answered objections better, have done more study when it comes to biblical patristic backing. So yeah, St. Maximus would be uh, destroyed by them, but they're not better theologians than St. Maximus is. They just had more time. 
So that's also why you ought to read readers, uh, ought to read authors like Origin um, and, and stuff like that. Because Origin, as many errors as he had, uh, he was just wrong um, on a lot of things. But he is just a brilliant, brilliant theologian. So you can you can form the habitus of theology. So I want all of you guys out there to do not take the Nouvelle Theology bait and say it has to be an either or. Do not take the bait. Do not at all take the bait. You can have the both and. You can read your manuals when it comes to providing that framework and that foundation and uh, the content of philosophy that you I mean, theology that you need to know. But you can also read um, the fathers. Um, you can go back um, ad fontes to the sources because the sources are going to uh, provide you with that habit of theology. But oftentimes they're less, much less developed when it comes to the content. Because, again, we have uh, further levels of uh, development throughout uh, church history. So, all of that. So, I see somebody <laughs> sent a super chat. But I think this is the last one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer. Although, I'll go through a brief, bit of the brief comments. So, what is Jesus' last name? It would be Jesus Bar Joseph, but is that is that really even a last name? You know, what? I'm going to Google it. <laughs> we're we're getting the best. Uh, what is Jesus's last name? Oh, learn Jesus's original name. Jesus's only name is Yeshua. Oh, those people are so annoying. Okay, people trying to debunk it online. Those are the worst when people are like, oh, what's Jesus' last name? And his name was actually Yeshua, and he's actually black, and he had dreadlocks, and blah, 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 blah. Be quiet. Nobody cares. Okay, so Trent Horn is really nice. You and I are reading the same guys. I'm glad. I'm glad we're reading the same guys. That's fun. Richard of St. Victor has unique insights, but his necessary arguments are his downfall. If he just made them indicate arguments, that would have been better. Yeah, I've heard. I've, I've heard. So I had, uh, I was talking with a, with a uh, very smart guy when it comes to Trinitarian theology. And I did make the comment about Richard of St. Victor. Like, yeah, he's kind of like all these necessary arguments that he's trying to make. And my professor did, um, did say, that that Richard of St. Victor, he didn't think Richard of St. Victor was making um, necessary arguments from reason, but only kind of doing what Thomas does in the Compendium Theology, Theology, Theologie, not the Theology, the Compendium the Theology. Gosh, I'll never be able to say it again. I've said Nouvelle Theology too much now. Um, the Compendium Theology. I'll never be able to see it. the compendium. Let's call it the compendium. So doing the same thing Thomas does in the compendium than in his other work, showing that the Trinity is not repugnant to reason, but is um, most reasonable. The best Nouvelle theology are all um, Thomas trained on the manuals. So yes, I think the manuals provide the best content, but we can't use them to replace spiritual theology. Thank you for the answer. 
Thank you for the question. That was a really good question. Okay, so that is all that there is. Um, make sure that you remember to smash that likes button, destroy that subscribe button to um, become a patron at patreon.com slash militant Thomist. If you're really enjoying what I do, get access to the other discord channels, get access to uh, all the books and stuff. And uh, that's all I can think about. Also get a mug. I always forget my, oh, I don't have my mug on my desk. I always forget it. Okay. Well, bye. Oh wait, Christ is risen. Hallelujah.